and welcome back to the goalpost. Happy Friday. We last left off with our college football bowl special, so that's where we'll begin today. Patrick, how's the loss lingering? It's it's definitely lingering. That's that's a good way to put it. I I still think about it. The Steelers win on Sunday night kind of saved my weekend for me in terms of my sports teams. But that was just devastating. I still haven't watched the replay of the kick. I don't want to. That's one you got to bury the game tape. You got to just forget that happened. But yeah, I, I said it. And when I was watching it happen, I do not want to leave it in the hands of my kicker. And unfortunately, a, some questionable play calling on first down. I agree with the second and third down play calls, but it was just too bad. And it's 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 brutal because he drilled the 48-yarder earlier in the game with could have been a 58-yarder. The leg wasn't the problem. It was just the second that ball left his foot, I knew it was dead. Yeah, it was bad. It was a bad kick. I had that written down for later on the play calling on that last like set of downs. We can talk about that a bit more later, but we're obviously talking about the Peach Bowl. Georgia ended up coming away with it 42-41 over Ohio State. But this game was more so about really the fourth quarter. This was a back and forth game with Ohio State on the dominant edge of it leading up to that fourth quarter. And they were able to respond the whole game with the big plays back and forth pretty much until those last like 15 minutes. Yeah, 14 point lead for Ohio State at the start of the fourth quarter. I felt good, felt good about where they were. It was it was a great game so far and. I knew it was like, you're, you're going to have to put on more points. This game is not over. Georgia's not going away because you could see Stetson Bennett was kind of, they're they're finding a rhythm on offense and they were starting to drive. And then uh, that Kirby Smart timeout on the fake punt. That fake punt would have probably sealed the game for Ohio State. They got the yardage. Um, I, I do think Kirby got it off. There's some people saying he was, he was late, whatever. It, it was clear that he called it, but you just couldn't hear the whistles. So everyone kind of thought it was it was late, but w- why is he calling a timeout there? It was just it blows my mind because I saw it and I was so excited that I was like Ryan Day made a good play call. They did something right. It was it was going so well, and then Kirby Smart and in a weird it's way, one of those weird like wizard. Them. Yeah. yeah, it's like one of those like weird was, like wizard good head coach plays where it doesn't really make any sense that it could have happened, but it totally did. And then after that, Georgia got that seventy six yard touchdown. Yeah. Uh, that strike, then the two point. When they got the two point, I knew I was because if you if you stop the two point there, you at least take a little bit of wind out of their sails. I know it's still a one score game, but now it's just a field goal, and there's there was too much time left. And then they went down again uh, to get the game winning touchdown eventually, and the less than a minute left in the game, and then. Yeah, and then CJ Stroud led a pretty good drive, honestly. Like he ran, he ran like I've never seen him run. That was by far his best game in a Ohio State uniform. Definitely. And he had an amazing game, which sucks it that beautiful. it came with this outcome because everything that people were really counting on him having weaknesses, he totally turned it on them. Like he was scrambling super successfully, threw two touchdowns in the first half, scrambling big time. And that's a really impressive response to what was a previous blind spot. And I think he raised his draft stock big time. Not that those guys care about that at the time of the game, but 350 yards and four touchdowns. He he was the best player on Ohio State. Yeah, it was him, him and Marvin Harrison Jr. who unfortunately got injured there on that. Uh, the target, they called a targeting reviewed. It was, I be- I agreed with the no targeting. Cause I think if, if you call that targeting, then, then safeties and corners, they just, they just can't make plays. On the that, ball. That's the problem is because it was such a high ball, yeah. right? Like it's not like that was a dart pass and the safety's making that play like intentionally trying to. Like if the ball's in the air, he has to do something to make sure that he doesn't catch that. And now with pass interference, you can't touch him until he's like very close to catching the ball anyways. Yeah, and and I'm a big like I love defense. So if you can't make that play, then I don't think like that's football. Like that was a football play to me. What upset me was that they called it targeting. So they got me excited and then called it back and then took it away. Unfortunately, you know, player safety, he he wasn't able to return, but I, I think that was a huge difference in the game. Uh yeah, to settle for a field goal there instead of getting the touchdown. Lose my one point. It was 
to me, that was the national championship. I don't know yeah, if that's a crazy take. That's but when yeah. you watch that game; those were the two best teams just duking it out on. And on it was the such a national game. championship type game. It's the night game. It's under the lights. New Year's Eve. You can't really get much bigger than that. And I think everybody realized that while it was happening that this is the national championship we're seeing. And it seemed like in the fourth quarter, it Georgia just turned it on. They had 18 fourth quarter points versus Ohio State's three. And it seemed like the whole game, Ohio State had trouble stopping the big play on defense. They were grinding it out on those in-between downs, but Georgia was able to get crazy efficient yardage out of its backs. They each broke out for like huge runs, 52, 21, 15. So they would get those big plays, and Ohio State could respond the whole game on offense. But it ended up just kind of drying out in the fourth understandably to put up that many points against a defense like that consistently for a whole game it's eventually going to dry out and they just couldn't respond with those huge plays to to kind of combat it yeah 41 points is nothing to be ashamed of they georgia just unfortunately had one one more in a a crazy shootout game where either team had their opportunities to win it and then it came down to uh noah ruggles who unfortunately you know just had probably the worst kick of his life at the worst possible time. But it, it's just unfortunate that Ohio State had to lay that egg earlier in the season against Michigan to get matched up against Georgia because that's what makes the loss so mo- so much, sorry, so devastating is because it's like you win that one, you're probably going to be more than a touchdown favorite against TCU. Or I, w- I would have been perfectly fine with seeing a, a little rematch in the national championship. That would have been fun. But all in all, it was um, it was a good game, good effort. Ryan Day kind of got back in the good books a little bit. I know he didn't win the game, but that was a he did everything perfectly from a, a game plan perspective. Yeah, it was just there was little differences. It was the timeout, the missed kick, and then Georgia's ability to just not go away and keep responding. And eventually, they they won. They came back and they made the plays they needed to to win that game. Yeah, especially on those last four downs we talked about earlier, that fell on the Georgia defense to make that a tough field goal. It's tough in that position for any defense to try and get anything out of that spot when he CJ Stroud breaks off that huge run and they get into field goal territory. But being able to stop them three times in a row and allow effectively zero yards ended up kind of being the difference because it looked like he put so much into that kick to try and get it far that it ended up really spinning off in a weird way was the only thing I could kind of come to the conclusion of. Yeah, I think he he made that kick more important than he should have. He should have just pretended yeah. that was that was 10 minutes left in the first quarter. You're, right. you're going out there to hit a 50-yarder because he probably would have. He was great all year. I believe he might have been perfect from 50-plus earlier in the like all season long. But it's unfortunate. I... I think they should have thrown on first down. And if they yes. if it was incomplete on first down, then I'm fine with running on second and third. I don't like running it on first down, going for no yards. Then you're kind of in an obvious throw first situation because, I mean, it's it's timeouts. You have to kill some clock, and then you need your – Well, after was, breaking off like, a run like that, why not go into shotgun and have the threat of scrambling again, which keeps the defense honest. Then you can break off a pass play on first down. And they were passing with success the whole game. It was just, it was setting up for one last touchdown pass. And that's why I was, I was really rooting for that. I said, no kicker. I don't want to see a kicker unless he's kicking an extra point. And unfortunately they just, that was the only knock on day. I would say for the entire game is just throw it on first. Just go for the kill. Don't play with your food. Go for the kill. And he didn't. He played a little conservative. Then then I think he second-guessed that decision and then went with the throws. And then obviously two incomplete passes, got no yards, and a missed 50-yard 50, 50 field goal. And, uh, and a, a great game, though. I mean... Yeah, it was a fantastic game. And we really got spoiled in general today. It'll bring us to our next game. I don't want to harp on this any too much longer and cause you more pain, but... Now we can talk about the Fiesta Bowl, which is, I think, everyone's favorite upset. Maybe there's another one later in the day that we can talk about. But TCU beats Michigan 51-45 in a really crazy, entertaining game. And it was a weird game. It was an interesting start because Michigan looked like they had a lot of juice, but just lost it so fast. 
and then TCU kind of just turned on the burners. But it didn't always stay that way. It was really back and forth. Yeah, this game was definitely foreshadowing what was to come because this one was arguably more exciting in a, in a different way because you you said it Michigan got out of the gates early I thought okay this is it's Michigan again it's gonna they're gonna walk through TCU they're gonna get to get to the national championship and play Georgia but it, it was not TCU hung tough with them and it was them who actually jumped out to the lead 14 nothing, and then they kind of just never looked back after that and Michigan never got a lead in the game and it the score Those was first close. few drives were just crazy because Michigan gets all the way down. And then in general, we have to just put this out there. I saw a couple of people talking about it on Twitter. Teams have to stop running the Philly special. Like it's not fooling anyone anymore. And they looked so dumb there. There was so many different variations of it run throughout the entire bowl season and yeah. through, through the season in general, really. And it's, yeah, it's, it's run its course. It's yeah, definitely. People are and onto then, it. A brutal pick six for J.J. McCarthy. He had two of those, which ended up, I think, being the total difference in the game. And yeah. TCU's offense plays with pace, which I love, because once they got that 14-point lead, they didn't take the burners off. Max Duggan had trouble throwing successfully during this game, but it didn't really let their offense become dull, which is why I think this team has been able to stick in game so long this season because they leaned on their running backs. They leaned on Duggan himself running, and it ended up being something that Michigan just couldn't stop. Yeah, and they basically got Michigan to play the the style of game that TCU wanted to play because Michigan started with the run game on the first drive, and then obviously we know what happened with the pick sixes later on and the Philly special at the goal line, but... I didn't think they would ever go away from the running game and they just completely abandoned it almost at times. And that's what got them into the, into trouble. And it played in TCU's favor and, and, and they ended up winning the game, but the moment just never seemed too big for TCU. Like they look like they belong the entire game. And I think they really surprised a lot of people and including myself. Yeah. They, they just don't give up. They contained Edwards for most of the game. It was weird how, Michigan went away from the run pretty much until it was too late because then when they started looking dynamic at the end, it was because they were running the ball and then it was opening up their pass game. But the TCU defense, like there's just guys on this team that step up every single night. Dylan Horton finishes with four sacks. Team in total had 13 tackles for loss. Bud Clark, D Winters both get pick sixes, which pretty much changed the outcome of the game where you when you look at the final score and how close it ended up being. And it just that it's a team that leans on each other in different ways week in, week out. It's not always the same script. The offense is usually the one putting up a lot of points, but they've been able to just do this by committee and it leaves them totally in every game that they play. Yeah, it does. It doesn't seem like there's any egos on the team. Everyone's in it together. They want to win. I, even though Max Duggan was a Heisman finalist, he seems like he puts the success of the team first rather than his personal success, which is huge for a team like this. Because if you get that spotlight and the hype this quickly, like TCU got kind of out of nowhere, really, egos can happen. And that's just not good for a room. We all know that. But they stayed true. Sonny Dykes, credit to him as a first-year head coach, just being able to get his team ready for the moment, who has never been in a playoff. I mean, first Sugar Bowl, or sorry, not Sugar Bowl, first ever Fiesta Bowl. It was just, it was beautiful to see. And going back to the two pick sixes, the first J.J. McCarthy one, it, it kind of just seemed like, okay, like this will be okay. Like it's early enough in the game. Michigan can overcome this. It probably won't be the difference. And then the second one happened. And that's Absolute when dagger. I that's when I was like, oh my goodness, this is TCU is in the driver's seat here and they could win this game. Yeah, it was just a crazy game of momentum swings too, because at the end there was times where you thought Michigan might be able to come back. Then they end up fumbling on that last drive, which was just an absolutely brutal fumble. And it oh, was hate to see it. Kind of the story of the game, right? Michigan stepping on their own toes when it mattered. And they just they didn't game plan well enough for this game at all. I think that they got out coached. And then at the end of the day, TCU just deserved to win it. And it looked like they wanted it more. They did. And I guess we should might as well talk about the two 
two questionable calls, I guess we'll yeah. call them, that went against Michigan. That was what I had uh, last, yeah. Okay, so I guess we'll, we'll just get into it. It's I was fine with both the calls because I'm going off my first reaction on the I, – I never watched the full, full replay of the touchdown that was called back, but my first look at it when they stopped it, he looked short, and I know it's stupid with the momentum and everything – but as far as I'm concerned, that's how they have been calling it all year. It's where your where the ball is when your knee is down in college football. That is where the the ball is marked. What, what did you? Yeah, think? I think that with the discussion of how much like focus they've put on retaining the ball, like in plays like that, they end up focusing so much on guys fumbling the ball, and especially in slow motion, it looks like guys don't have complete hands on the ball until they roll in, which is why I was surprised it was called back because in the slow-mo, it looked like he was kind of fumbling it around. And then once he was in the touch uh, in the end zone secured it, but I also totally see how they would have called it back because of where he fell. I think that it was unfortunate that it ended up being such a turning point because then they get stopped at the goal line and TCU ends up going back down and scoring a touchdown, which is a, effectively a two touchdown swing well yeah that's what i was gonna say usually like in the moment i'm sure michigan fans are like okay that's fine we're on the half yard line we'll just we'll just punch this in and then obviously we we know what happened with the fumble and then the other one the targeting i think even if they called that targeting michigan was not going down the field and getting a i touchdown. think so too it was a tough one because it's just one of those plays where you're like why are you making that tackle oh of course right? yeah it was such an unnecessary tackle and you, if you're a TCU fan, you would have just been absolutely holding your breath for a minute and a half because even if they weren't able to after, in a game of so many momentum swings that it was, it felt like if they got a 15-yard penalty, it was just going to be momentum essentially that swung them through the door, and you just didn't want any possibility of that. Yeah, and when when it was when Michigan cut the lead to six with that much time left and they got the ball, I kind of was like, okay, here, here they go. You know, the better the better team all year kind of is going to win show through, but yeah. they, they didn't. And it's, you, you question whether the season was a full success for Michigan. I mean, you're more than a touchdown favorite in that game. You lose outright, obviously you beat Ohio state, you win the big 10, which is huge. But at what point do you want to be considered in the national title conversation? Right. It's, that's the only argument. It's, it's not, weird a, not a for failure. Harbaugh too. Right. Well, now because now all the NFL, yeah. Rumors are swirling, and I feel if they win that game, those are really put at bay. Because then if you put up a fight in the national championship, you can say, oh, we're literally that close. Yeah, yeah. But now it's a it different is. conversation. It, was, it wasn't It was even winning the national championship. It was just getting there. That was getting the next there. step for Michigan, and they had just a beautiful opportunity right in front of them. You're, you're more than a touchdown favorite, and... You kind of blew it. You did those two pick sixes. Like those are unforced errors that you, you're the only person to blame there. So it is what it is. Yep. But congrats to TCU. Yep, congrats to TCU. We're gonna get to our national championship preview a bit later. But first, a little bit of bowl cleanup, starting with a crazy entertaining game in the Orange Bowl: Tennessee thirty-one, Clemson fourteen. And I say crazy entertaining just basically because of the arm of Joe Milton the third. In our preview, we really focused on how this would be a game of backups and how it was effectively going to come down to how each backup quarterback played. And Joe Milton really showed out. Joe Milton was good. Joe Milton was definitely good. But the star of this matchup for me, and for all the wrong reasons, was B.T. Potter, the kicker for Clemson. We were talking about uh, bad kicking mishaps in the Ohio State-Georgia recap. This was a this, bad kicking clinic. This is... This is all time. This is as bad as it gets. And for, I didn't watch too much of Clemson this year, but apparently he was one of the better kickers in the ACC and in college football. And he was just terrible. I, I, I've got to look up the stats. That's one thing I missed. He ha, was two for five. Was two for five on two his kicks. Two for five, man. That's so many points on the board. Yep. And it, it, this game was frustrating as a, for a Clemson better because it kind of felt like they had the ball the entire game. And then Tennessee would get it, and then Joe Milton's arm would Break just show off these through. huge yeah. plays. Yeah, seventy-yard play, sixty-yard play. It so was so frustrating. 
so frustrating. It just was. I'm just time of possession. Uh, Clemson, 36 minutes, 23 seconds. Tennessee was 23 minutes, 37 seconds. So wow. it, I, it was just frustrating. And to win more by more than two touchdowns with that, with those kind of stats is kind of wild. It was wild. And eventually I, I just kind of kept live betting Clemson because I was like, there's no way. There's no way they're losing this game. But uh, I might be wrong about Cape Klubnik. I might be wrong. It's okay. Tough it game for him. Yeah. yeah first with start. Two interceptions. First start. Still threw for 320 yards, but didn't help that they couldn't get Shipley going. He finished with 72 yards, 17 carries. Just wasn't good enough in that respect. But I encourage you to watch the highlights of this game if you didn't, because I think that Joe Milton has an arm that's good enough for NFL teams to really take a flyer on him because there was some because just because he has that extra year of eligibility left, like he's going to go in and start for that team next year. And if he does that all year, if he's throwing 70 yard passes on the 35, how do you not? Right. You'll just take him and then say, okay, we can morph him into something. Tennessee is going to be so fun to watch next year. No kidding. It's it's I'm excited. It they have the ability to build off of what they've done this season now, which is huge for them because a lot of the a lot of the times it's like, okay, the quarterback reaches the end of his tenure, he's done, and then you have some freshman or a sophomore who's not what that quarterback was, but you have an experienced quarterback and Joe Milton coming up next. Yep. You just need some of the young wide receivers to step up, and I think Tennessee could be finding themselves in a similar situation to they were this year. Yeah, speaking of Tennessee wide receivers, they were led in the game by all-time name team member Squirrel White, who finished with 108 yards. Um, And the last thing I had was that the uniform matchup was just as good as we thought it was going to be. Give me an all-orange Orange Bowl every year from now on, pretty much. Tennessee officially has the better orange. Definitely, and I think that proved it. But that brings us to the Sugar Bowl where Alabama just took care of what they had to do. They win 45-20 over Kansas State. And this game really just broke open in the second half. Yeah, were you you were on Bama. Were you sweating at all when Kansas State got out to that 10 nothing lead? I, I don't think so. Just because of how this Alabama team is, especially because in classic form, they came out ripping in the second half. They're just such a good second half team that I didn't really worry that even if they did get down going in, that they were going to come out. And they, like you said earlier with the Michigan team, sometimes you just expect the better team to do the right thing and be the better team and just roll over them. And that's exactly what happened pretty much. Yeah. I mean, after those, after the, their first 10 points, they didn't get any other points in the first half, which looking back on it was Kansas's Kansas state's opportunity to kind of, you know, take advantage of this game, take control, make a statement. They needed 20, 21 points at half Yeah, they if they want a chance. And they ended up with 20 points in the entire game. And that's not going to cut it against Bryce Young and no. this Alabama offense. And eventually Bryce Young just kind of figured it out. And they were, they were fine. Yeah, similar to CJ Stroud, he also raised his draft stock, which was already pretty high. But he finishes the game with 320 yards and five touchdown passes. And one thing that we focused on in the preview was the Alabama receiving room heading into this matchup, how we weren't sure because it's one of the things that they've struggled with all season, who's going to come up. And they got it done by committee in pretty much the perfect way. They had five receivers with over 45 yards. Jermaine Burton led with 87, and they essentially just dished it off across the board, which made it way harder to stop. Yeah, there were some names that I... I was definitely writing down because I, I hadn't really heard of them all year. And then you yeah. hear the announcers telling you like, okay, this is the guy that they're excited about for next year. So Isaiah Bond, who got a touchdown, was one of those freshman wide receivers that will they're looking to make a huge step next year. So Alabama is going to be an interesting team next year, but good win. You didn't want to see them lose this game. I know everyone was talking about motivation as a factor in this game, but you could tell Alabama was motivated from Bryce Young and Will Anderson just signing up to play because they didn't have to. No one would have been upset. Really. Maybe Alabama fans would have been upset if they sat out. But I think that shows shows a lot of heart and shows a lot about what this Alabama team was. And I think they're a good good unit, but obviously maybe somewhat underperformed in the entire season, not making the playoff. 
Yeah, the offense totally led from the front today in that game, and they were the ones really keeping that team moving forward, which you're right. They did underperform a bit all season, but Kansas State just ended up not having the chops to really hang in all game. They also didn't really get a lot of help from their offense. Will Howard finished with only 210 yards and two interceptions. Deuce Vaughn did all he could in this one, finished with 133 yards on 22 carries and a touchdown. He's still electric to watch. And there were some bright spots from Kansas State's game, but their offense just didn't look scary really at any time. No, the the matchup on the lines really showed through. For me, yeah. it was obviously uh, Deuce Vaughn with that 88-yard touchdown run early was was huge, but I think that was pretty much like you got 88 yards in that one carry and finished with 133 yards in total. Yeah. Which kind of shows you they eventually just overcame what uh, Kansas state was throwing at them. And it just the stronger team kind of showed through. And it was just once, once Alabama got that first touchdown, you started, you saw the gears turning and the momentum shifting Will Howard, obviously, you you mentioned it, not having any touchdown passes hurts, two interceptions to boot. It just wasn't the game Kansas State wanted, but I think they'll be very happy with what they showed this year, and it's just just something to build on for next year from a team that wasn't really expected to do that much, and they ended up winning the Big 12 and getting to a Sugar Bowl. Yeah, good year for the Big 12 in general overall. But that brings us on to the January 2nd games where starting with the Rose Bowl, Penn State was able to let Sean Clifford go out in a blaze of glory in his last college game after upsetting Utah 35-21. But unfortunately, the real story of this game was the injury to Utah quarterback Cam Rising. It changed everything. Yeah, I don't think Utah fans were prepared for Bryson Barnes to come into this game. Neither no. was I. I don't think you were either. But he did. He had to he had to he was thrown into a huge spot really with uh with a tie game. Or they might have were they down a touchdown? I think they were down a touchdown when he came in. It was Utah ball looking for a response in what was a back and forth game up to that point. No one really like it was, it was a very even game. I didn't really know which way it was going to go. And then the second that rising injury happened, you kind of knew Penn State was probably going to pull this one out. Yeah, it was an interesting first half because each offense kind of came out slow, but it was more that each defense kind of came out strong. And they were each able to get their own drives eventually. And it was 14-14 heading into half. And it was a super even game, kind of what everybody expected. And then Rising goes out with one of those finger injuries, and it's another, you know, finger, wrist, hand injury to a quarterback this year with the crackdown on roughing the passer. So many pass rushers are now just focused on affecting the throwing motion or targeting the hands. And we're going to just see more and more of these injuries, which sucks because an offense that was already trying to get into rhythm suddenly had to go in with their backup, and it totally allowed Penn State to break open their game and their offense went on to put up 21 while Barnes only managed one touchdown for Utah in the second half. Yeah, those Aaron Rodgers-like uh, hand injuries are definitely something that will continue to happen with, like you said, pass rushers looking to bat down balls, strip sacks, and such. But in the end, you got to give some credit to Sean Clifford and the Penn State offense because you said it, it was a bit of a defensive battle in the first half. But eventually, Penn State did find enough on offense, and they put up 35 points. Uh, Sean Clifford passed for two touchdowns. It was they were just super. Singleton efficient. also had that huge that huge run where you thought maybe Bryson's giving Utah a chance. They're getting the ball back. They're still only down a touchdown, and then he breaks off a massive run to pretty much put the cap on a Rose Bowl win for Penn State. And yeah, what- they seem to to br- bring those TD drives kind of out of nowhere. Their offense was crazy efi- efficient. Like their top receiver, Keandre Lambert-Smith, finished with 124 yards and a touchdown on three receptions. Singleton finishes the game with 120 yards on seven carries. So they were kind of just having these, you know, spot up drives. Same thing in the first half, which kind of led to their first two touchdowns. And it ended up just working because the Utah offense couldn't 
come back, but that's no discredit to the Penn State offense because that defense is still tough on Utah and they found a way to break it open. So I think that's a big uh, upset win for Penn State. And I think that's a team similarly for next year who's going to be entertaining to watch. I don't even know if it was an upset, man. I think this this win proves that Penn State was a good football team. Yeah. And that the Big Ten is a good football conference. I think no, it's a good way to look at it. Obviously, bowl season in the wins and the playoffs didn't go too well for for the Big Ten, but the fact that they had two teams there and then the Penn State, their only two losses coming to Michigan and Ohio State beating the Pac-12 champion just kind of shows you that big boy football will will take you places and Pac-12 playing a prettier set. Like, I'm very interested to see how USC is going to do in the Big Ten. Speaking of, last but not least, we take you to a massive program win for Tulane and maybe the other favorite upset that I mentioned earlier. They topple USC 46-45 in an all-time stinking Riley game. And they just figured out the USC defense. Like they play gritty football. They could not stop Ty J Spears. I've I've borderline never seen a performance like that. 205 yards and four touchdowns. Anytime they needed a yard, you knew who was going to, and they just still couldn't stop it. Yeah, he averaged 12 yards on the ground per carry on 17 rushes, which is just, yeah, four touchdowns. It's it's crazy. And then even the quarterback was running the ball when he wanted to. Michael Pratt had obviously two touchdowns in the air, but he ran for 87 on the ground, or sorry, ran for 83 on the ground. It was probably the most entertaining game in bowl season because I think everyone was cheering for Tulane and it got to a point late, like, before the safety where I, I thought it was over. I thought USC had won it and I was, I was distraught. I was upset. And then the safety happened and Dude, they were down 15 with four minutes and 14 seconds. Exactly. Left. That's when it was just, you get the touchdown and then you're like, okay, they're going to look good on the box score, the difference. And then the safety happened and you're just like, Oh my goodness, this is happening. And they just went down the field after the safety, they got the punt and what, what a win for Tulane. Yeah, what and that was what was most impressive about it was just how mentally tough they were. They just showed that they wanted to win this game more, and they stayed in that mindset the entire time. They go down early 14-0, then they get a huge TD and interception afterwards. Then almost the exact same script, they go down 28-14 into half, have a huge opening TD drive, then force USC to take a long field goal and miss, and then come back and get their own field goal. So they just kind of kept chipping it away. And then, yeah, down 15 with four minutes and 14 seconds left. They lead a TD drive, then pin them in the end zone off of a kick, a crazy kickoff. I don't even know why he recepted that because it looked like it was flying out of the end zone, but it hits him on the first yard line and goes out of bounds, lets them convert the safety, crazy drive with a touchdown pass that initially gets called back and then eventually just caps off the program win. Maybe the best bowl game in the bowl game series which is saying a lot yeah it was really fun to to be on Tulane and cheering for Tulane from the kickoff it was it was quite the ride and this we I I mentioned it in the Alabama Kansas State Sugar Bowl recap but people were questioning motivation in that game which that isn't a factor because they have Nick Saban as a head coach who wouldn't let that be a factor Lincoln Riley and USC seriously lacked motivation in this game and Tulane I haven't seen a team like want want something more than what to how much Tulane wanted that win and you could see it like you mentioned down 15 they just wouldn't go away they're just so resilient and man do those colors look good when they're winning yeah no kidding I think it was the biggest turnaround in two seasons in college football history I think there were two and 12 and then went 12 and two which is pretty insane just a massive turnaround for them and something that everybody loves seeing. I think they're an all-time team for colors, for mascot, for everything. I think people just love seeing Tulane win. Yeah, the green wave. And I think it's pretty fair to say now, obviously Caleb Williams was a stud in this game. I yeah. don't think anyone is, he didn't like lose any stock or, or anything. He was He was the best player for USC. But I think it's fair to say that the committee got it right in leaving USC out of the playoff. And yeah, I think if anything, 
this that past weekend showed that they got it right pretty much on every angle. Yeah, and good for that, and good for them because they there was some criticism by some people. You know, Alabama might be the only fair uh, comparison, but I think people were trying to take TCU out to put Alabama in, so they kind of shut everyone up exactly by, by beating exactly. Michigan. That was it. Was fun, man. It was a really fun bowl season, and obviously, we still got one more to go. Yep, but we'll come back to you after with our national championship preview. But yeah, all in all, a great bowl season. All right, we're back now with a special national championship preview. We've been teeing it up. TCU versus Georgia. Number three, TCU. Number one, Georgia. January 9th, SoFi Stadium in LA. Doesn't get much bigger than this. And few, if any, gave TCU a shot to be here. And that might have been motivation enough for them to advance the college football playoff national championship game. And all the pressure is on the Bulldogs. Yeah, it's very clear that Georgia is supposed to be here and TCU is not. But I just I don't think TCU cares. That's where they're most comfortable. Yeah, they don't care. Sonny Dykes has this team focused on themselves and nothing else the outside noise is not getting to them they're not seeing the gambling lines like all that stuff it it doesn't matter to them they are the team and they are the only people that matter to them and i think this line is quite disrespectful if we're being i think so too and it's already moved i think it opened at a lot of books at 13 and a half or I even 14, saw 14 even yeah and now it's since moved to pretty much unanimously 12 and a half right now but i think that might even move further in the next couple of days it might I I could see this game being around um, probably a ten because I would say sure it doesn't matter about the Michigan but seven so sorry TCU was seven and a half point dogs against Michigan they are now twelve and a half point dogs against Georgia it's this feels like a spot where I think TCU is going to be in this game I don't know I'm not going to go out on record and say that they're going to win this game because. I do think Georgia is the better team. I think they're the deeper team. I think they're the stronger team. I, I think Georgia's better in pretty much every every facet except for maybe heart. And but heart means a lot in these games. And you saw it against Michigan. TCU just they wanted it more. Michigan got too comfortable with where they were at, and TCU said we want more, and they went out and took it to Michigan. So it'll be very interesting. I think you'll know pretty early in this game where like what kind of game we're going to get, is it going to be Georgia gets out to the quick 14, nothing lead and you, you see it happening or does TCU go out there, hold them to a field goal and then goes up seven to three and it's okay. We got a game here. Yeah. And that seems to be the script in so many national championships that you can tell super early how it's going to be. And the most interesting matchup is of course the TCU offense against the Georgia defense. That's like the thing that catches your eye. Bulldogs are fifth in the nation in scoring defense. Frogs are fifth in the FBS in scoring offense. Can Duggan step up in such a huge game? But I think that while that's the most interesting matchup, the most crucial matchup is how TCU's defense shapes up against Georgia's offense because that's really going to be what determines the pace of this game. I don't know if the TCU defense can get enough stops to win this game, but offensively, the Frogs should be able to put up enough points to keep things respectable at a minimum in regards to a spread, but I think that it's effectively going to lie with how Georgia's offense plays. It effectively still goes through Stetson Bennett and how they drive this team. Yeah. And Stetson Stetson on offense in last year's national championship took a while to get going. People were asking, are the lights too bright? And you even saw it a little bit against Ohio state in the, in the peach bowl. It just, it took him a while to finally get in rhythm to get the offense to where, it, they're at their best and if that happens again against tcu and tcu is able to you know grab points like they were early uh against michigan it's just it puts you in a spot where you can't stetson bennett and the georgia offense can't be too lackadaisical too early and they have to be able to find a way even if it's just field goals just get some points try and take the wind out of tcu's motivation and their their underdog mindset make sure like they feel like they are the underdog because if you give them hope, hope is one of the most dangerous things you can give, give an underdog. And I I think TCU does have hope in this game though. I'm very interested and Georgia's defense kind of suspect the past two games. I mean, 
It's certainly uh, not what it was last year. LSU, no, LSU was able to put up 500 yards passing, 30 points. Ohio State put up over 300 yards passing and uh, and 41 points. And TCU was able to score against a very good Michigan defense. Yeah. So I know obviously two pick sixes, but I think T- you said it. TCU will probably be able to put up some points because Duggan's a, a veteran quarterback. He knows what he's getting himself into here. I don't think the moment's going to be too big for him. It's just kind of how how you said it, how Stetson Bennett shows up because he's just kind of been not good in the big games early. Yeah, and the I, the point of hope is so interesting too because I think that starts at the offensive line for TCU. Oddly enough, if they're gonna have any chance at this upset, it's gonna be winning the battle by giving Duggan time to make plays and establish the running game. Ohio State found a lot of ways to make big plays in the passing game, and TCU has the ability to do that, but they can't afford being one-dimensional. So that all starts at their offensive line. And you're right, this Georgia defense has looked suspect in the past two games. So if there's any offense you really want going up against them right now, it's a guy who is in the Heisman finalist, a offense that knows how to stay in games and scrap to get points. So I think that it's actually a... It's a way more interesting matchup that I think the lines are even giving it credit for. I think that's the problem with that because a lot of the times people look at spreads before going into games and a lot of people are just going to immediately write off TCU, but I don't think that's going to be the case. And it's weird because the total is high as well at 63. You would if think- you're expecting them to put up 63 points, those are coming from somewhere. Yeah. It, it- when you when I see like a 12 and a half spread, even 13, 14, whenever you see it, at, that usually means probably gonna be mid to high 50s uh the fact that it's being in the 60s you're giving tcu's offense credit and in a weird way so i do think it's a disrespectful line but i also think in a way they are making a statement saying georgia is georgia's better than michigan so you're not it's not it's a different game that tcu's getting themselves into here this is uh J.J. McCarthy is a decent quarterback. His his passing needs work, and it and it needs polishing. Stetson Bennett is twenty five years old. He is polished. as vet as a vet. He, yes, yes, he is polished. He's probably not going to throw two pick sixes. I could be wrong in saying that, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say it. It's just the moment probably won't be too big for Georgia, but will it be for TCU? That's another yeah. question I have. I think TCU will be well represented though in LA. They were they had more Michigan. They were they had more fans at the at the Fiesta Bowl than Michigan fans, and I I don't see why they wouldn't have just as many, if not more, fans in LA for the national championship. And I think everyone wants TCU to win this game. If you're not a Georgia fan, essentially, everybody is riding with this Frogs team, and it's going to come down to yeah, are they able to step up in the big game and not be afraid of the lights? Are, is their defense able to stick in with a Georgia offense that's been crazy complex and depth at time and in depth at times they get it done by committee a lot. One of the things that I'm kind of looking at in this game is status of Darnell Washington, because if he is healthy and Brock Bowers is healthy, they both essentially act as an extra tackle on a lot of Georgia's rushing attacks. And if you have both of them healthy, TCU didn't really face really strong tight end play against Michigan, and they didn't really have to deal with much. And that's going to be a complex problem for them to solve. But if they can stick in those games, get Stetson off of his rhythm, then it's going to be a game where we see it really neck and neck. And then it's going to come down to stuff like we talked about in the last TCU game, like will Sonny Dykes outcoach Kirby Smart? Like little things like that, being creative on offense, trying to get points wherever you can. Trick plays, big trick, trick play plays. advocate. And I was very happy to see Ryan Day attempt one. Unfortunately, somehow Kirby sniffed it out. So I do think uh, Sonny Dykes and TCU should empty their bag of tricks, man. You, there's there's no consolation it. prize here. It is this is your moment. You never know if you'll ever get back to this spot again, and you don't want to have any regrets. So I think empty empty the bag, man. Do whatever you got to do. And going back to Darnell Washington, he he is the he answers the question of what would LeBron James be like if he played football, like 6'7", yeah. 270. That, it was just ridiculous. I, I, I knew he was on Georgia, but then you, you, your favorite team goes up against Georgia, and you're just like, this, this guy is illegal. 
He, he's just, it's not allowed. He, you can't do that. So I hope he's okay to play. He's an exciting player to watch. Yeah, and I'll I'll get with my last thing. I was getting a little football nerdy and trying to go in depth, but one of the defenses okay. that TCU runs a lot is the three three five, which against tight ends is like notoriously a tough defense to run. If you have, especially if you have two tight ends like killing it, we see Kansas City slice and dice people with Kelsey that way. So it's gonna be one of those games where like Kirby Smart. And that Georgia offense is going to be coming out with a lot of bag of tricks as well. Like they're no stranger to that. And it's going to be up to Joe Gillespie, you know, Sonny Dykes to essentially outcoach them and outsmart Kirby Smart. Ayo. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for this game. I'm going to take TCU Moneyline just for fun. Probably for sprinkle fun. The, the, the spread as well. But Stetson Bennett wins this game. Georgia will be the... First back-to-back champions since Alabama in 2011-2012. And Stetson Bennett will probably enter like GOAT territory in college football, which is just wrong. Horrific to say. It's yeah. just wrong. But, but you yeah, know what? This winners, is a game, win. winners win. This is a game where I think everybody's super excited for a perfect you know, Monday night game. It's on at 7.30, which is so awesome. So happy they changed that. Yeah. So happy. <laughs> Perfect, perfect adjustment. So I think this is a perfect game for everybody on Monday night to sink into. And I think it's going to be a good one. All right. Welcome back for a bit of a pace change and a refresher after a lot of football coverage. We are back with another edition of NHL trending up and down. Been a lot of movement in the NHL landscape the past few weeks since we talked. Most of the solid contenders have remained firm, but still lots of interesting stories. Beginning with trending up, I have the Minnesota Wild. In the Central Division, things are popping off still. They are 8-2 in their last 10. And since December 1st, they are 12-4. That .75 points percentage is fourth in the NHL since then. And in those 16 games, they've scored 57 goals. They're just laying it on teams. Yeah, and... Not only with the offense, but they found a little bit of a gem with Philip Gustafson and Nett, who has a, a 9-5-1 record. He has a 225 goals against average and a 924 save percentage. So not only is Marc-Andre Fleury like carrying the load, but when uh, Gustafson has to go in net for to help him out, it's they're not handicapping themselves because they have a pretty good goalie back there. And Minnesota's definitely uh I think I think this was inevitable. I think we all knew Minnesota was going to be in the playoff race. Uh, it just took them a while to kind of get there, but now they're they're there. Yeah, and and it's fun to watch because it's not really the wild of old, the ones that are trying to grind out two one victories and playing really conservative hockey. They now still kind of have those gritty elements, but now they're super offensively dynamic. Zuccarello and Kaprizov each have twenty points in their past. Um, eight, 10 games. So they're just doing everything right. Yeah, it's a, it's a refresher from the Mike Yo days. Those Big were time. with Suter and Parisi. It was just, those weren't fun teams, but these, these wild teams seem more threatening to win a cup as opposed to those teams who were just so, it was a different game, but they were just so defensively minded and it was, they're just boring. And uh, Kaprizov and, Zuccarello are a it's a lethal combination there. Eric Sinek as well. They just, they have a good team with some young talent. Boldy Gustafson. They're, they're just wait, they're winning watch. a lot of games like five one six two statement wins. Yeah. yeah, just a ton of just walloping teams. But yeah, that's my trending up. My my trending up is the Washington Capitals. They were on a five game win streak in their last ten. They are seven one and two. So they're buzzing. They are also quietly getting healthy at the right time right now with Oshi, who is who's been back the past two games after missing six. Uh, Nicholas Backstrom is expected back early to mid January, along with Tom Wilson. So those two should be back pretty much any time now. And then John Carlson, they're hoping he's going to be back earlier than expected because he's expected back pretty late in the season, but. There's some signs for uh for joy as a Capitals fan because I didn't really know what you were gonna get out of them, but Ovi sneakily on pace for 50 goals again. You're fourth in the Metro, first in the wild card, and you're and you're, they have to keep playing at this clip too because the Metro's a dog fight right now. Yeah, and and similar to Minnesota, they found goaltending. Uh, 
Kemper and Lindgren, who's been a nice surprise for them. They both have a sub 2.6 goals against average, and they both have above uh, 0.910 save percentage. So it's they just they're getting it done in all the right places. They're getting healthy at the right time. So we'll see if this is sustainable for Washington. But up until now, they're they're definitely trending up, and things are looking good for the Capitals. Yeah, they've been super hot. But that brings us to trending down. With another team in the Metro, mine is going to be the New Jersey Devils, who have had a tough last month. After being the absolute darlings of the NHL, they've kind of hit a bit of a rough patch. They've gone 3-6-1 in their past 10 games, and they're 5-11 straight up since the start of December. And they've gone 8-8-3 eight and eight and three since that insane 16-3-13 game winning streak stretch. And... They're mostly on my trending down because they're a really talented team, but no one is really sure what they are. And I don't think they're sure what they are. They don't have a real identity yet. They've looked amazing at some points and been an offensive buzzsaw, but they've also let up a ton of goals over the past stretch. And I don't think Devils fans are really getting worried, but the Metro is only getting more and more competitive. Yeah, and I think a big problem for New Jersey is their their overall depth. On forward, uh, obviously you got you got Hughes who's having a great season. Jesper Bratt, Nico Heischer, and obviously Dougie Hamilton's pretty good on defense. But I mean, Thomas Tatar is past his days. I mean, Dawson Mercer is coming into his days. He's not there yet, so they're just kind of in a in limbo a bit. But I think they they're a good enough team. They'll they'll I think they'll be in the playoffs. But I do think they're not as good of a team as they as they started off to be. I think Vitek Vanacek is also kind of coming down to earth a little bit. Mackenzie Blackwood might not be, might not be. Well, is he, is he still injured? So I should, no, he's back, but he's just kind of not what they expected him to be. So the the devils are definitely coming back to life a bit. I'm not going to go as far as Keith Yandel did and say, they're not going to make the playoffs, but I think they are definitely coming back to life and they got to figure out something pretty soon here. Yeah, exactly. But who's your, trending down my trending down and it, it's 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 a tough one to say but it's it's very recent the pittsburgh penguins are quietly trending down they have lost six in a row after they had their their little seven eight maybe even nine game win streak uh, about a month ago they've kind of also similar to the devils come back to life a little bit and i don't they're think they're in the playoff picture right now are they not can i got it here for you they are, yes, they're outside the playoffs right now, two points out. They, they're they losing crucial games here, and their they're six-game losing streak, they've lost to division opponent Carolina, the Islanders, and the Devils, who you're getting the Devils at a perfect time, and they still can't beat them. They've also lost crucial games in the wild card to Detroit. Then you lose to top teams like Boston, and then a top team in the West in Vegas. They're a similar team to New Jersey where they just lack third and fourth line depth and they, they're too reliant on Sid and Gino and those guys to just carry the load for them. And it appears that Jari might be missing some time. We don't know how serious he's being evaluated, but it's a, it's a crucial time for the Penguins because you can't let this, this losing streak continue. Yeah, and it feels so crucial for momentum swings in Penguin seasons now with this aging core just feels like every season they're trying to squeeze that last little juice out of it and you can't really go through these big swings especially in the metro now the top team is separated from the fifth team by 10 points but then there's three teams within a single point of each other within that so it's gonna be a ton of jockeying and you have to just keep your horse in the race which is usually what the penguins are so good at doing right being a consistent team and eventually just finding themselves in a nice playoff spot and a good first round matchup but you just can't let this go on for much longer absolutely not because you have you have teams in the atlantic behind you that are they're finding something you know the sabers the red wings the sends and then i'm assuming florida's eventually going to go on a bit of a run here so yeah you can't come back to those teams and let those teams back in it because if you keep losing you can you'll fall pretty quick yeah I agree, but that does it for a little NHL trending up and down. We're going to get back to you next week with a little more NHL talk after some of the college football wraps up. 
but we'll come back to you with another edition of Light the Beam. And welcome back. We're going to close with another edition of Light the Beam. Light the Beam! Light the Beam! Where I'm going to start with the Canadian World Junior Hockey Team winning its 20th gold medal. Light the Beam Canada. Back-to-back goals. And they beat the Czechs 3-2 in overtime to secure 20 gold medals. That's just a lot. 20 is a lot. 20 is more than I would have guessed having heard that. And what what a tournament for Canada. They avenged their their only loss in the final to Czechia. Just having won every game pretty much. Well, beating every opponent, that's something to hang your hat on. And there was talk about this being like the team of the century, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't think they're that. But they're a good team and they, they won in... What was one of the most competitive World Junior tournaments I've seen in a, in a long time? It's so great to see some parody at the tournament. The Czechs get a silver medal, which was which is huge for their program. And that's a team that's played together for a really long time. Um, but similarly, there was just competitiveness really around the tournament. There was a lot of upsets, a lot of crazy late game comebacks. And it was one of the more entertaining World Juniors in the past while. Special shout out to Connor Bedard, obviously. He can light the beam after being named tournament MVP. He now owns the national record with 23 all-time points and 17 all-time goals at the World Juniors. But that sounds like a misleading record because it sounds like he's been playing for a while. He also set the most points by a Canadian in a single tournament with 23. So he was just setting records left and right. And he's clearly the first overall pick now, if there was any doubt before this, you know, re-Adam Adam Fantilli. Yeah, that conversation is over with. I'm surprised it was a conversation, but I guess that is credit to the season that Adam Fantilli's having over at Michigan. That Connor Bedard put on a show from game one, uh, even though they lost, he, he still looked good. And then to that overtime winner against Slovakia, he, he was just... He was a sight to behold out there, and I think it's it's a sign for NHL teams. Like if you're in that bottom seven, we'll say bottom eight, maybe start the trades a little bit earlier than you usually would because this is a can't miss prospect. Yep. And credit to Shane Wright, he didn't have a a great tournament. Uh, I think as to what some people may have been expecting of him, but what a goal in the finals! No better time to come through and and do something like that. It, yeah, I think he found a role and filled it too, right? Like he didn't realize yeah. he he realized he wasn't going to be that Bedard like player, but he ended up being one of the stronger backbones of that team. Yeah, he 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 showed good leadership and good captain ability to he quickly realized, I think from that first game that okay, this probably isn't my team even though I have a C, so I'm just going to do whatever I can in my power to help this team win, and he did. And when he was needed, he did come through. So credit to him. I He's also very well-spoken in those interviews after. He was crediting all the team. He's very happy. And at no point in amidst, not backlash, but maybe some criticism, he didn't you know hang his head at all. He stayed, had a positive outlook. And it was just, Canada would look great. I'm very happy they won. Yeah, but who's your light the beam? My light the beam is Damar Hamlin. The safety on the Buffalo Bills. Scary, scary incident on Monday Night Football in the against the Cincinnati Bengals Buffalo Bills game. He went into he suffered cardiac arrest. Uh, he was there's a a long period of time where uh, people really didn't know what was going on. Uh, everyone kind of was guessing different things, but it appears now he is able. He's off breathing tubes. He spoke to his team today over FaceTime he said love you boys it's it's I'm sure that's a very big morale boost for the Buffalo Bills in in their just season. a collective like breath of of relief Huge. for so many people it was, people it was very uh very scary because I think for a lot of people like that's just something that can kind of happen to you at any point in your life like you don't have to be playing football for that to happen and it just quickly puts life into perspective uh, as just like a normal person, just watching that, you're just like, okay, this is, yeah. uh, you just, you come down a little bit, you realize the, some of the little things aren't as important as you make them out to be. And you just, you got, don't take life for granted pretty much, but it's very nice to see DeMar Hamlin is 
showing signs of of recovery and he's he's doing better than expected is all is everything that remarkable recovery everything i'm seeing so good to see good news yeah it's awesome it's just one of those great feel-good stories that especially after a scary past few days you know everything fell to the background and football you know seeding everything fell to the background and everyone collectively kind of just focused on praying and on a human life and thoughts was, to this yeah. guy's life yeah so it was a nice moment in that sense of everybody really collectively taking a moment to think about it and send their thoughts that way but yeah i think that ended up being a really positive sign towards the end of the week and it's something that i think a lot a lot of people take us a, a sigh of relief yeah it was it was very very good to hear that he's doing well yeah but i think that does it for us today We've got a great weekend of sports coming up. We're still in the sweet spot right now for football, NFL, college football, NHL. Everything's going on, so get out there and enjoy it. Yep, a lot of playoff implications on the line this weekend in the NFL. So if you're one of those, if you're a fan of one of those teams that's got some implications, hope uh, I wish you the best of luck and have a good weekend. Right on. See you, Patrick. See you, Damon. I was broke, pocket full of lit, live on the bricks, getting paid like no other dog, now I'm stacking chips.